Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is John 15, 1 through 12. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children of the church, you are dismissed to King's class as the rest of us are seated. Well, uh, a, a Nobel laureate, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, famously sung, Times, They Are A-Changin'. And uh, he sang that in the 60s, but it seems that times are a-changin' once again. I was uh, with some folks that I work with, and we were talking about slang, about the words the kids are using these days. And um, someone mentioned that the word cool is no longer cool, that if you want to say something is cool, you say it's Gucci. It's Gucci, yeah. And then someone else mentioned the word yeet. Yeet. Now, yeet is very hard to define. Um, in fact, someone said that yeet means yeet, which, which really suggests that if you don't know how to use it, don't try. Right? <laughs> But I was thinking, I could say, could I get a yeet? <laughs> um, another colleague of mine uh, mentioned a phrase I hadn't heard, that if you're, if you're saying you're going to go, you can say, I'm finna drop set. Yeah, I'm finna drop set. But I was able to, to one-up everybody on slang. 
Because I had just run into Jackie Bryant. If you don't know Jackie, she's a wonderful person in many, many ways. But she's also the principal of IVA Middle School that meets here on our campus. And I had just seen Jackie, and uh, she, if I understand the story, she was coming to school, and one of her middle schoolers liked the way she was dressed, liked your outfit. And this middle schooler said to Principal Bryant, Principal Bryant, your drip is nasty. (laughs) All right? And that's a compliment. Your drip is nasty. So if you like how someone's attired today, you can come, go up to them after church and say, your drip is nasty. Um, well, culture's changing in lots of other ways uh, besides slang. Our cultural moments, as we call them, have really, it seems, turned into a cultural shift. There's a bit of a new tone, a new mood in our world today. Uh, what could be assumed can no longer be assumed. Uh, what was plausible at one time is now almost immediately implausible. The rules have changed in our culture, and Christianity is certainly caught up in that. Uh, I think it was Eric Balmer who pointed this out to me. About a year ago, there was an opinion editorial in the New York Times called, It's Getting Harder to Talk About God. The decline in our spiritual vocabulary has many real-world consequences. The author of this essay was referring to some research that over 80% of American adults say they don't have a spiritual conversation, a conversation about God, at all, or very rarely, over the course of a year. Over 80% of American adults say, "I, I never or rarely talk about God over the course of a year. Only 13% of Christians who are regular church attenders report having a conversation about God or spiritual matters uh, once a week. Only 13%. We don't talk about our spiritual life, apparently. And when they were asked, why don't you talk about spiritual things? Why don't you talk about religion or God? People, unsurprisingly perhaps, said things like, "Um, I don't want the situation to get tense. I don't want it to be politicized. I don't want to offend anybody. We live in a cultural climate where where talking about religion in general, maybe talking about Christianity in particular, is not very popular. There was another uh, recent essay, this one, uh, just uh, earlier this month in The Atlantic, Uh, written by the president of Wesleyan University, who in this little essay uh, identifies himself as an atheist Jew. And he also makes it clear that Wesleyan University gave up any explicit ties to Wesleyanism or Christianity in the early 1900s. So this isn't a Christian university. But he, as an atheist Jew, is, is talking about how his students are very reluctant to talk about issues of faith, issues of religion. He says they'll, they'll, they'll engage very difficult topics on moral issues, political issues, social issues, but when he brings up religion in his classes, their eyes go down. And he asks, particularly his Christian students who he knows are, are devout Christians, why don't you talk about your faith? And they say, we get the impression we need to check our faith at the door when we come into the classroom. We're in the midst of a cultural shift of some sort. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in a very different period of history in many respects, uh, in a book called The Cost of Discipleship, 
says this, the issue can no longer be evaded. It's becoming clearer every day that the most urgent problem besetting our church is this. How can we live the Christian life in the modern world? Bonhoeffer was trying to understand how do we remain faithful to Jesus in a 1940s German culture, Nazi culture, in which everything about the culture was antithetical to Christianity, and the church of that time had largely capitulated to Nazism. And Bonhoeffer is asking this very difficult question, how do we remain faithful? How do we live the Christian life in this culture? And I think that's a a burning question for us as well. Many Christian leaders are, are talking about the need, actually, to return to a bit of what Bonhoeffer is referencing here, the cost of discipleship. We need to return in our cultural time and place to a long and a slow and a deep and a serious discipleship to Jesus. That we need a a, a spiritual formation process in Christ where we immerse ourselves so deeply in his ways that we can withstand the complexities and challenges of our cultural situation. And so when we come today to John chapter 15, uh, we come as disciples of Jesus. This, this text is, is spoken to the disciples. Jesus says in the midst of the text that Sienna read so well, good job, honey. Um, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, my mathetos. Uh, disciple literally means learner, student. Jesus is calling his disciples into a process of being students of him. And we now are invited into that same process where we're learning from Jesus how to become like him so that we can live and love like he did in our contemporary cultural context. It's not just cognitive learning, it's, it's whole life learning. It's an embodied way of life with Jesus, his practices, his view of the world. We want to take it on. And so we've been uh, working our way through in this, this sermon series, which Daniel told me is ending today. One way or another, it's ending today. Uh, we've been working through the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. And uh, this is the seventh I am statement, I am the vine you are the branches. So I thought it would be good to, to review a bit the other statements. I'm going to turn around because I can't see them up there. This is, hopefully you can see them out there. But uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the light. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the door of the sheep. If you enter by me, you'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture nourishment. He goes on to say, I came that my sheep may have life and have it to the full. He goes on to say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that are going through the door to find pasture. He knows his sheep and they know him. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then a couple weeks ago, uh, Will talked to us about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. And then today we get to, I am the vine. What do you notice about these I am statements? And you can actually talk back if you want to. I'm a teacher normally. What do you notice about them? 
Ryan Bryant wanted to participate, so Ryan, I'll give you a huge. What do you, what do you notice about these statements? Yeah, the drip is nasty. That's it. My drip is nasty. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. I'll never call on Ryan again. That's, uh... Well, in this space, we don't normally talk back. If Keith Dowds was here, he'd probably talk back. But he's not here this morning. So we don't normally talk back. Um, but, but one thing you might notice, right, is these are all nourishing metaphors. They're life-giving metaphors. Light for your path. Uh, bread for those who are hungry, resurrection, new life. And you know the other thing that's common in almost every single one of these texts is the word life. It's interesting, this word life, because uh, we actually translate three different words in the Gospels with the English word life. There's the word bios, bios, which we might think of as biological life, just kind of functional life, and that is sometimes used in the text. Uh, there's a suke, which is more uh, inner life, psychological life. And then there's zoe, the Greek word zoe. And zoe means spiritual life, but really it has this sense of animating life, vitality. It's, it's this infusion of something in reality that, that makes it come alive. And in every single one of these passages, the Greek word that's used is zoe. The light of Zoe, the bread of Zoe, abundant Zoe, the resurrection and the Zoe, this spiritual life. And in John 15, we get this, this, we don't see life, but we see life almost implied, right? I am the vine, I have life, and you are the branches. And my Zoe, my life, is meant to flow into you. It's a very interesting thing about a branch and a vine. If you've ever trimmed uh, grape uh, vines or grape branches or any other kind of plant, right? I was out trimming the other day, and if you take the, the clippers and trim, there's a little bit of liquid on the clippers usually when you squeeze down on that branch because there was, there was juice flowing through. I don't know what it is. It's not orange juice, but, you know, some sort of, some sort of liquid. There's some sort of nourishment flowing through that branch. And so Jesus is talking about himself. Uh, I'm going to be using C.S. Lewis this morning. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, actually follows this theme of Zoe throughout uh, these lectures, which were eventually a book. Uh, He says, A person who changed from having bios, biological life, mere functional material life, to having Zoe, spiritual life, would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real person. And that's precisely what Christianity is about, Lewis says. This world is a great sculpture's shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Zoe, spiritual life. With Lewis up there, it's hard not to think of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I don't know which book it is, maybe it's the last one, where there are some folks that the white witch has turned into stone. And Aslan, the God figure, <sighs> breathes on them. He animates them. He, he, he breathes spiritual animating life, and they come alive. Jesus says he has this. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, just as the Father has life in himself, Zoe, in and of himself, Jesus 
has Zoe in and of himself. He's not derivative. He's the original. And he has the life to offer us. So I want to look at John 15. If you have your Bibles, um, turn there with me. There's four places I want to hone in on here. Four points about this passage. John chapter 15. I think it's page 901 in your Bibles. The first point that uh, needs to be, I think, focused in on is that Jesus is telling us that he is the true source of zoe, of spiritual life. He is the true source of life. He is the true vine. He has this life-giving nourishment, and it's unconditionally available. Jesus' life is not there only if we do something for him. It's available to us unconditionally. The only question in this passage is whether we're going to remain in it or not. The vine has life flowing through it. The question is whether the branch is going to remain attached to the vine. But his life is available. The only question is whether we're going to avail ourselves of this available life. Um, In verse 9 of the text, just jumping down a little bit in John 15, uh, Jesus says, um, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The Father loved him unconditionally. The Father's love was ever-present, and Jesus abided in that love. And he says, Just as the Father loved me, I love you. His love isn't going anywhere. Elsewhere, he says, in fact, the chapter before, he says to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll send my spirit, and he will remain or abide with you forever. Jesus himself says in his great commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not going anywhere. His love is available. It's not conditioned. The only condition is whether we will remain in his love. We can't make him love us, but we can abide or resist his love. And that's the next point. Oh, but before I go there. Oh, no, no. I thought I had another slide. I don't. Okay, it's coming, though. It's coming. Don't worry. Um, That's the next point, is that this this language of abide, it's it's an active participation. We We are meant to do something with him. And, and it's a spiritual, relational, mutual abiding or remaining. Some, some translations translate it reside in him or dwell with him. Abide, remain, reside, dwell with him. It, we, we're called to abide in him in this passage, to abide in his love, to let his words abide in us. It, it's, it's his presence his invisible but very real presence by his spirit and his meaning, his word. And we shouldn't think Bible too quickly here when we hear Jesus say word, logos. Because the Bible, the New Testament doesn't exist, right? When he says, uh, and let my word abide in you, he wasn't thinking the New Testament. He was thinking of himself and his way of viewing things, his way of understanding God, his way of understanding his disciples' relationship to himself, his meaning, his understanding of what life was about. He's saying, abide in in my meaning, abide in my word, abide in how I view things. Remain there. Here's the slide. 
Uh, so uh, Gary Burge, a New Testament commentator, says this, John 15 emphasizes that neither doctrine, the right beliefs, nor ethics, our right behavior, can alone define Christian discipleship. It reminds us that remaining in Christ, having an interior experience of Jesus as a branch is nourished and strengthened by a vine, is a non-negotiable feature of following Jesus. Without some dimension of an interior experience of the reality of Jesus, uh, without a transforming spirituality that creates a supernatural life, doctrine and ethics lose their value. So it's a real remaining with a real person who's alive and well and still at work within us by his spirit. But it's something active. It's something we need to do. Abiding isn't just a belief I have. Yes, Jesus, I'll abide in you. No, there's got to be a practical, concrete way of doing this. Again, I want to appeal to some other sources on this. Marianne Thompson wrote a beautiful commentary on John's gospel. She puts it this way, John's distinctive use of abide to describe the relationship of Jesus to the disciples and the disciples to Jesus has two dimensions. It implies receptivity. It is neither passive nor static, but entails an openness and responsiveness to Jesus's life-giving presence. An openness, responsiveness. And two, as part of John's rich vocabulary for the varied aspects of discipleship, abiding implies perseverance, steadfastness, or faithfulness. In John, the life of discipleship does not merely begin with receptivity. We might say, you know, the first time you prayed the prayer. Such receptivity characterizes the entire life of the disciple from beginning to end. And the question that this presses is, well, how do we receive that spiritual life? How do we do that? What are the practices? What are the ways? Let me mention one other uh, quote here. This is uh, D.A. Carson who says, The imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. But the point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his zoe, his life. This is the sin qua non of spiritual fruitfulness. I had to look up that Latin phrase this morning just to make sure I, I knew what it meant. But, you know. It's the essence. It's, it's, it's the one-of-the-kind thing of the spiritual fruitfulness. Nothing else like it. But again, how does that work? How do we remain imbibing the life of Jesus? If, if I told my wife, you know, if I woke up and said to Alicia, Honey, I really want to abide with you today. I really want to remain with you today. I really want to reside with you today. And then I got up and jumped in the car and drove to Home Depot without her. There'd be, that'd be a little confusing, right? If I'm really wanting to remain or abide or dwell with her, it looks like I'm going to have to plan my day to include her. Maybe we'll go for a walk and we'll listen to one another and maybe I'll ponder her words. Maybe we'll carve out space for our relationship. See, if we're going to abide with Jesus, if we're going to remain with him, we can't just say, well, Jesus, you know, keep me abiding. We're going to sing that song in a little bit. Little bit. I want to talk about that language. I actually asked Mike to, to sing it, but, but it, it, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say for us to ask him to keep us abiding. He says, abide. That's on us. What is my plan to include him who's available to me in my day? How am I going to carve out space? 
When am I going to talk with him? When am I going to listen? When am I going to meditate on his words? How am I going to abide in him, his love, to let his words abide in me? Again, Lewis, later on in Mere Christianity, the real Son of God is at your side. Notice the realism there. The real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. This is the bearing fruit. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that does not like it is the part of you that's still tin. Now, Lewis brings up a very interesting point here about this language of remaining or abiding. There's a part of us that doesn't like it. There's a part of us that doesn't want to be fully transformed by Jesus' abiding presence. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of dying to self. And so in this abiding in the vine, there's a part of us that wants to abide and often does abide elsewhere. And so the practices of abiding become even a, a bit more complicated and conflicted. We want to abide with him, and yet there's something within us that holds back. There's something within us that still abides elsewhere. And this is the discipleship process. Now, there's a couple other things I want to point out here in this passage before we end. Because uh, there's a couple things I think that can trip us up here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Now, if we're going to take Jesus seriously in what he's teaching us in this passage, we've got to take that seriously. Really, Jesus? If I abide in you and your words abide, ask whatever I wish, and it'll be done for me? Really? I don't know about you, but I've had my share of unanswered prayers. So what's going on here? Well, the first thing to notice, and this is a much longer and deeper conversation, but that this isn't just some sort of blank check of prayer, right? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, well, if that was really happening to the full, if I was really fully abiding in the vine and fully allowing Jesus' meaning, his understanding of what life is all about to abide in me. What would I actually ask for? I bet a lot of the things I ask for probably wouldn't come out of my mouth. I think of the, the movie Bruce Almighty. That's kind of an old classic. Uh, if you remember Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey gets the opportunity to be God for a bit. And one of the, one of the first things he has to deal with is prayer requests. And uh, so he decides to take prayer requests via email. And so he's getting millions and millions of prayer requests via email, and he's trying to answer them. He's just, you know, he's going through all these emails, answering, answering. And finally, he gets so frustrated that he just selects all and hits yes. And he answers everyone's prayer request, yes. And in the next scene, we see chaos ensues because everyone wins the lottery. And there's riots in the street because when everyone wins the lottery, no one wins the lottery, right? And, and everyone gets out of jail because all these people are praying. Or everyone gets their court case, uh, uh, they get set free. And there's chaos. See, there, there is something, if, if we got everything we asked for, things probably wouldn't go so well. We, we do need to abide in him and let his words abide in us. And that's going to refine our prayers. And yet it must be deeper than that because sometimes we pray for really good, good things. 
for healings and deliverance and protection, and yet it doesn't happen. And there's, again, lots to say about that, but I think one of the things that we need to bear in mind is that Jesus is saying, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you in John chapter 15. But at the beginning of John chapter 18, John is going to tell us that Jesus is walking into a garden. He's heading to the cross and he walks into a garden. And we know the name of that garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And while John's gospel doesn't tell us the story of what happens there, the other gospel writers do. And so we know in probably less than an hour after Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you, that Jesus is going to be pleading with his father, grieved to the point of death, the text says, and saying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. See, the Jesus who says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you, isn't going to get his prayer answered. The cup isn't going to be taken from him. He is going to have to drink that cup. But notice how Jesus prays. If possible, take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. See, it looks like if we're abiding with Jesus and letting his words abide in you, not only what we pray for might be a little different, but how we pray might be different. We might pray in such a way that ultimately we're resigning our will to what God is up to in the world. This is how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then he goes on to say, and give us this day our daily bread. We, we pray for our petitions in light of our growing recognition that we want his will to be done. Now that doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's perfect will. We make a distinction oftentimes between God's perfect will and his permissive will. And so there are ways that our prayer requests do not get answered that not only we don't like, but God doesn't like it. God has allowed the world to go ways that he himself doesn't wish. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's done perfectly in heaven. It's not done perfectly on earth. And so we wait. And that's what I want to end with. And I had Sienna read this last verse. Normally in John 15, we end the unit of thought with verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. But then Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. See, one of the things that we're not going to be able to do without Jesus' help is fulfill this commandment. One of the things that we need to abide in him for is how to love one another as he has loved us. Because the way he loved us is a sacrificial love. He he loves those who are in desperate need of love. He loves the vulnerable. He loves the helpless. He loves those who can't help themselves. And his love reaches down to folks who the world would say are unlovable, certainly unlovely. And so Jesus is saying, now I want you to go to those people, which is really all of us, right? We're all needy. We're all vulnerable. We're all broken. We're all hurting. Go to those people, and you're going to need me to help you do that. You see, there's something about loving those who are vulnerable, those who are helpless, 
those who are particularly in need, where, where we need help. I was uh, thinking of Jean Vanier. Is this Jean Vanier? Yeah, there he is. Jean Vanier founded the Laarche communities. If you know about the Laarche communities, this is a, a communities of, of folks who live together, uh, developmentally disabled adults and their, their assistants, the, the folks who take care of them, and they live in mutual friendship with one another. And Vanier says it's never easy to be constantly close to people who are weak and in pain, whose limits and handicaps are irremediable, and to be with them as friends. Assistants, the folks that work with those who are developmentally disabled, the assistants in Laarche soon discover their own limits, vulnerability and weaknesses, the places of violence, of fear, and of anguish within themselves. As we get close to the poor and weak, we begin to accept our own poverty and weakness. We learn how to become vulnerable to others, not to control them, and how to cry out to others and to Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. As we seek to live life with Jesus, abiding in his presence and his meaning, he calls us into the world, this complex world. And he says, keep my commandments. And and here's the commandment that's closest to this text. It's to love one another as he has loved us. This is that place where, where we need to abide in him. We need to remain in him. And we need his help. And as we reach out to others who are in need, who are helpless, who are broken, as others reach out to us, we say, I can't do this on my own. I need you, Jesus. One of the ways that we keep abiding is by reaching out in love to those around us. Okay, I had one last quote. I was thinking it's too late to share it. But I'm just going to share it anyway. Because C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, some of you may feel that this is very unlike your own experience, what we've been describing. You may say, I've never had the sense of being helped by an invisible Christ. But I have often have been helped by other human beings. Well, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, not only through what we think our religious life or spiritual life, he often works through nature, through our own bodies, through books, sometimes through experiences which seem at the time anti-Christian. But above all, he works on us through each other. Human persons are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other persons, Sometimes unconscious carriers, we don't even realize we're doing it. This good infection can be carried by those who have not got it themselves. He calls the good infection this zoe that we bring from Jesus to others. People who are not Christians themselves helped me, Lewis says, to Christianity. But usually it is those who know him that bring him to others. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians showing him to one another, is so important. So folks, uh, we have been called as disciples of Jesus, as students of him, to learn from him how to live life like he did, in order to love like he did. And what he teaches us here is that in order to do that, we need to remain, we need to abide. And that's not just a nice belief or a nice thought or even just a vague commitment. It's a concrete, practical reality. 
What are your practices of abiding? Where are you trying to carry that good infection to others? Where are you opening yourself up to others who have that good infection to bring to you? There's going to be some people uh, available for prayer uh, as we move into worship. And perhaps uh, one way you might move towards abiding in Jesus is through asking for prayer or for offering prayer to others. And let me pray for us. So, Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for these I am statements that frame for us the reality of you, that you are real, that you are the resurrection and the life, that you are the way, and uh, we can follow you into truth and zoe, that you are the vine. And Lord, uh, we do ask that you would keep us abiding, but, but we also know that you call us to abide. So maybe what we're really saying is help us to find ways to abide in you. Help us to draw near to those who help us abide. In your name we pray. Amen.